You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. Turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, while you're finding your place, um, just a reminder to uh, sign up for uh, the flock note so we can stay connected to you. The instructions are there in your bulletin. Another reason that's uh, helpful and important is uh, we're sending out devotionals for Advent uh, each week. And if you want to be part of getting those uh, devotionals that you can use with your family, then uh, take the moment, look in your bulletin. Uh, there's some notes there on how to sign up for flock note so we can kind of stay connected with you and also keep you up to date on what's going on and all the different events and ministry opportunities that are happening. So make sure you do that. So Matthew chapter 12, I'm going to read, read these verses this morning, starting at verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for them to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest and the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means... I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the, son of the, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered the synagogue, and there was a man there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and, was, and it was restored healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will any, anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. Father, we thank you for your kindness and for your patience and for your work in our life. We're not deserving, we're not deserving of any of that. We're grateful for it. May your word go forth this morning. And may it find fertile soil in the hearts of the people here this morning. That it may bear fruit, much fruit, to your glory and to your honor alone. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I were to ask you to define hope. How would you define that? How would you, maybe in a sentence or two, sum up hope? Well, maybe, maybe this week and the holidays, maybe we can sum it up this way. 
Um, maybe, maybe you're thinking that salad that you're going to eat for lunch today, you're going to hope that that salad negates everything that you've ate over the last two or three days. Maybe that's a hope that you've got. Maybe, maybe you're hoping that um, you're going to have enough financial means to be able to buy all the gifts that you need to buy this Christmas without going in debt. Maybe, maybe you hope that um, when you step on the scale, that the scale's actually lying in January. Maybe the batteries are low in it, and what you're seeing on the scale is not, not reality based on the last two or three months of, of heavy eating and partying through the holidays. Maybe you're hoping that um, you won't be alone this Christmas. Maybe you're hoping that um, the loss that you've experienced this year in your family is not going to be to such degree that you're not going to be able to make it through the next few weeks. I'll tell you how the dictionary defines hope. It's not going to help a lot, but I'm going to go ahead and give it to you anyway. The dictionary defines it this way. The feeling, notice this, the feeling that what is wanted can be had or events will turn out for the best. And all the experiences and all the examples I just gave you of, of a hope that the salad I ate for lunch turns around all the dessert that I ate on Thursday. We're just kind of hoping that's going to be the case, but in reality, that's probably not going to work out. I hate to crush your dreams, but it's probably not going to work out that way, okay? Hope in, in our culture, in a way we define it, in a way the dictionary defines it, is nothing more than, than wishful thinking, Right? I just hope that it all turns out. I hope that, that somehow this can turn out to, to benefit me, to, to turn out good for me, to turn out well for me and my family. Whatever it is, the way we define hope is based on how we feel. And at the center of hope is us. That somehow hope is just going to come up out of the circumstances that we're in. Come up out of, out of whatever we're grasping to or reaching for that, that somehow that thing is going to provide hope. And, and for many this season, for many this time of the year, hope is going to be found in a bottle. And another hit of heroin, a Percocet, a painkillers. The only way they're going to be able to get through the next few weeks and the depression that comes with it is is some kind of substance that we we put into our body to help us forget the pain and reality of life because everything that we've put our hope in has somehow let us down. I mean, we've listened to the government, we've listened to philosophers, we've listened to the entertainment segment, and they've all said if you'll do these things, you'll do these 10 steps or these three steps or these eight steps, then, then you're going to have hope and you'll be a, the best version of yourself that you can be. Right? Have you heard that lately? Yeah. You see, the problem is, is where we're looking to find hope. I think, no, no I'm, I'm certain that, that in my life and, and I think in yours that We've spent a lot of time looking in all the wrong places for hope. And I think it goes back to how we define it and how our culture defines it. That it's somehow, if we wish full, if we wish this thing into existence and we, we think about it long enough and we do all the right things and we do all the right things consistently, then, then somehow we're going to find hope in that and, and we'll have our happy ever after, right? Jesus, by the time we get to chapter 12, and Matthew has uh, performed a lot of miracles. It's, it's amazing. From chapter 8 to chapter 12, the concentration of miracles that Jesus has done in just those few chapters. 
I mean, it's like one right after another, after another, after another. And so I want to give you a, a little bit of help when, you, when you're reading through the Gospels and you're reading through the book of Acts. I want to give you a, a little bit of insight in, in what these miracles and what Jesus is saying about them to help us understand it and rightly divide and rightly understand and rightly apply Scripture. So I want to give you just something real quick, and it's going to follow us over the next few weeks. When Jesus is doing these miracles and when he's, when he's speaking to the people, the people would hear Jesus and they would go, man, nobody has ever spoke like this before. There was nobody that could compare to Jesus in the way that he taught. Not the Pharisees, not the scribes, not anyone. So when Jesus would speak, people's minds would just get blown. And so, so Jesus would use the word, the words that he would speak. And, and through those words, he would reveal who he is. Ultimately, all of the miracles and everything that Jesus does always points back to his identity. He is the God-man. He's not just another teacher, not another, just, just a prophet but he's something far more and far greater. So, so Jesus will speak the words, and he'll, he'll do something else. He'll not only speak the words, but he'll also do the works that no one has ever seen before. In, in these chapters leading up to chapter 12, Jesus does something that is unheard of. He reaches out, and he touches a man with leprosy. Now, that doesn't seem like a much in our, in our day, but, but for Jesus' day, the man with leprosy, which was a skin disease, he, he was considered unclean. And no matter where he went, he had to cry out that he was unclean. And, and no matter where he went, no one would have anything to do with him. It'd be like people would stay at arm's length away from him because they didn't want to catch this disease and they didn't want to be unclean themselves. So they kept away from this man. So he was isolated. He was alone. And talk about a man with no hope. This man had no hope. And Jesus reaches out and touches this man. And I would imagine that every Jewish person around on that day gasped out loud that Jesus, this great teacher, would reach out and touch someone that didn't deserve to be touched. You see, the works that Jesus did was unlike anything anybody ever seen. It was almost as though Jesus would run towards the people that were the most isolated and the most broken. Isn't that amazing? Nobody else was doing that. So his words, his works, and then there was a third part, the wonders. Not only did he reach out and touch this man with leprosy, but he healed it on the spot. No one else was coming close to this. You, you heard Miss Megan mention those 400 years. At the end of close, the close of Malachi and the opening of the Gospels, there's, there's 400 years of time where there's no miracles, no word from God, no prophets, nothing but silence. And then out of nowhere, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and then Jesus grows up, and then he begins to do things immediately after the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's account. He goes out and he just starts healing people. Let me give you some. He cleanses a leper. He, he heals the centurion's servant. He even heals Peter's mother-in-law. He's casting out demons. He, he calms a storm by the words of his mouth. He heals a guy who was paralyzed. He, he raises a ruler's daughter, a daughter who had been dead. He raises her back to life. He heals blind men. He heals a man who's been mute and is demon-possessed. And all of this points to who he is, his true identity. Through his words and his works and his wonders, all of that points back that he's more than just a man. Now from this, from this stage, we get to chapter 11. Now look at chapter 11, this closing verse in chapter 11. And this provides 
kind of the, the kind of the foundation of what's going to happen next. Now, all along, as Jesus is doing these healings, the crowds are getting bigger. There's more people flocking around him. At chapter 9, we see the first instance in Matthew's account where the, the Pharisees get upset because Jesus is casting out demons. He, he's doing things, in, and the Pharisees say there's only way that he could do this is if he's an agent of Satan himself. That, that Jesus, in Matthew, in Matthew 9, looks at a man who's a paralytic, and he says to him, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees are, were infuriated because there's only one who can forgive sin, and that's God. So in that moment, when, when Jesus looks at that paralytic who, who's been lowered down through the ceiling, you remember that story, Mark 2 gives us that detail, that he's been lowered down to where Jesus is teaching, and this man is, is crumpled up, he can't move, and Jesus looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven, and the Pharisees, the religious rulers in the room, absolutely lose their mind and accuse Jesus of blasphemy. One of the worst sins a person could commit. You know what's always been amazing to me is how that the people who were leading Israel, the Pharisees and the scribes, instead of celebrating the fact that a man has just been healed, instead of celebrating the fact that a daughter who was dead has come back to life, instead of celebrating the fact that demons are being cast out, you know what they do? They begin to plot to kill Jesus. As all these people begin to find real true hope, the religious people want to snuff it out. I'll come back to that in just a minute. You see, Jesus saw these masses of people as sheep without a shepherd. And you know what happens with sheep that don't have a shepherd? Well, they don't last very long. They get devoured. They have no one to feed them, no one to care for them, no one to lead them. So Jesus, when he looks at the masses of people, he, he sees sheep without a shepherd, and he also knows that the nation of Israel, the leaders of Israel, were called to shepherd those people, but they had failed in their duty. Jesus, being the great shepherd, is now going to care for those sheep. He's going to love them. He's going to protect them. And then he says this in chapter 11, and this kind of sets the stage for what we're going to look at in chapter 12. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. It's the idea, this picture of, of maybe an animal or donkey that is so weighted down that it can barely move. He says, if you, if you are weighted down, if you are heavy laden, he says, come to me and I will give you rest. Now, this had to get people's attention. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. What's Jesus talking about? Well, he's going to the core of the problem. And the core of the problem with the people is that they've been taught generation after generation after generation after generation that they can find hope by keeping 613 laws every day consistently. And as time goes on, and as the Pharisees take the Mosaic law and, and twist it into something it was never meant to be, the people are told that if you want to be right with God and you want to find hope in God, then you must keep these laws and you must keep them exactly the way we interpret them. And if you don't, then you have no hope. You have no rest because every single person 
that Jesus is coming in contact with have tried over and over and over again to be right with God by doing good things. They've been working and working and working, and all that they have is a yoke around their neck. And Jesus steps onto the scene and he says, now if you want to have hope and you want to have rest, come. I've got a yoke for you, but my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I would imagine that the people, as they see the miracles, as they hear his words, and they see that his works all line up with love and compassion and mercy, no wonder there's crowds flocking. Because who doesn't want real true hope? Chapter 12, verse 1. We're going to find out that hope is... Not a theory, not a pop dream, not a... It's not based on our feelings. As much as we'd like to think that we can somehow muster up hope inside of us just by our own will. I want to direct your attention this morning where where true hope can be found. And to do so, we're going to have to identify some of these places you're putting your hope that's not giving you any hope at all. Matter of fact, it's a yoke around your neck. And you're longing, you are longing for rest. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry. They began to pluck heads of grain and eat. So so Jesus, a couple of chapters back, had sent the 12 out. He's got the 12 assembled. He sends the 12 out. He says, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go out there and you're going to go house to house. You're not going to take food with you. You're not going to take any provisions with you. You're just going to try to find the person of peace. That person's going to invite you in. They're going to, they're going to take care of your needs. If they don't, then keep on moving to the next house. You're not going to go to any Gentiles. You're going to stick with the Jews first, and you're just going to rely upon God to provide for your needs. They go out, and amazingly, the disciples come back with a report that not only are they able to do the same miracles that Jesus is doing, but there were people who blessed them along the way. So now Jesus is back with his disciples, and because Jesus is a perfect teacher, he's going to model for the disciples what he expects. And what are they doing? They're going from community to community, proclaiming the good news of the gospel. Jesus is healing. Jesus is teaching. Jesus is aligning himself with those who are outcasts. Nobody else was doing that. And you know what they're doing? They're relying on God to provide. It was of the custom of that day that when they would walk from tribe to tribe or community to community, they would walk along the grain fields. And there's a reason for this. Because the Jews were instructed that in their farming practices, the grain fields, that they were not to harvest every square inch of their field. That they were to leave some of the corners and leave some of the edges for people who were traveling to be able to find something to eat. So Jesus and his disciples are traveling along these footpaths, along these grain fields, and of course, hunger strikes the disciples. They're hungry. Maybe it's been a while since they've had anything to eat. So the disciples look to their right, and here's a nice field with grain in it. They go over and they begin to pluck the heads of grain. They begin to rub them in their hands because if you just pluck the grain right off of the stalk, you're not going to be able to eat it. You've got to separate the shells and the chaff or the leaves from it. So they would rub it together in their hands, hoping to get maybe a tablespoon or maybe even just a teaspoon of grain and they could throw it in their mouth. This is what they're doing. And the Pharisees saw it. Now this, this begs a question here. Are the Pharisees just kind of hanging out in the fields, (laughs) waiting to catch somebody doing this? Because here's the problem. The problem is, is they're working. You know how they're working? They're putting the grain in their hand, they're rubbing their hands together, separating the chaff from the seed. And when they eat the seed, the the Pharisees are going, aha, you're working on the Sabbath. How dare you? 
So are these guys just out hanging out in the field waiting for somebody to mess up? No, but they were watching Jesus and they were watching everything that he did because he's the guy that everybody's flocking to, not them. So yeah, they're watching Jesus. And maybe it was across the field, I don't know, we're not given the detail, but across the field they see Jesus standing there while his disciples are rubbing this grain together in their hands and Jesus is not condemning them. Jesus is not stepping in. He's not stopping them and that is the real problem. So the Pharisees make a beeline straight to Jesus and they walk up to Jesus and they say, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. You see, the issue is, if Jesus is a true Messiah, if He's a true teacher, then He would have enough sense to know that what His disciples are doing is sinful, violating the Sabbath. And any good teacher would immediately get involved in that and say, stop it, you guys are breaking the Sabbath and you need to repent. But Jesus isn't doing that. You know why Jesus isn't doing that? He's going to tell us. So I want you to see this contrast. On the one hand, the Pharisees are saying that hope is only found in keeping 613 laws consistently every day. That is their concept of hope. But Jesus has something else to say. First of all, he's going to destroy their argument as he always does. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence. If you go back to 1 Samuel 21, you'll read of an account where David is running from Saul with his men and they're hungry. And David knows that there's bread in the temple, in the house. They have both common bread and this special bread called the bread of the presence. So, so David goes to the priesthood and he says, do you have any, any common bread? They didn't have any. And the priest says, all we've got is the bread that's been in the most holy place. And that bread is only to be eaten by the priesthood. But the priest in that moment recognizes, first of all, who David is. And second of all, that his men are hungry. So you know what the priest does on that day? He takes those 12 loaves of bread that were only to be placed in the holy place of the temple. He removes them and gives it to David for them to eat. You know what he did? He saw a group of men who were suffering. And in that moment, compassion overruled the law. Hmm. Notice what happens next. Jesus said, or have you not read in the law, verse 5, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. In other words, Jesus says, you know, those bread, those 12 loaves of bread that represent the covenant between God and Israel that were to be placed every single week inside the most holy place. Not the most holy place, but the holy place. Most holy place is where the Ark of the Covenant is. The holy place is the room outside. There was a table there that those 12 loaves had to be placed. He says, don't you know that those priests had to cook that and prepare that on the Sabbath? Are they violating the Sabbath? And then Jesus gets to the point where he says, Here, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. <gasps> he has certainly crossed the line now. How could something be greater than the temple, the place where God's presence would be found? But, but Jesus says something's greater. Who, who, what is he saying? What is greater than the temple? Jesus is saying, I am here. And my words and my works and my wonders point to the reality that I am more than just a man, that I am the God-man. And the sooner you guys understand this, the sooner you accept me as Messiah, the sooner you're going to find hope. Something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, 
I desire mercy and not sacrifice. He, he quotes Hosea 6, verse 6. He said, you would have not condemned the guiltless. Here it is. Condemned the guiltless. Jesus says these 12 that are plucking grain, they've not broken anything. You see, God desires mercy rather than sacrifice. He desires you to love one another just as you've received love. He desires for you to love neighbor as self. Remember, Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of the commandments? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and all of the prophets hang on this. But that that sentence there, condemn the guiltless, I wonder, I wonder if you go back to the end of chapter 11, he says, come to me, all that are burdened and heavy laden. I wonder if the reason they were burdened and heavy laden is because they were constantly being condemned. They were never good enough. No matter how well they kept the law, they would never be a Pharisee. They would never be a scribe. They, they, would, they would be good, but not good enough. Never in the Pharisees' eyes, never in the religious rulers, no matter how hard these people tried. The poor, the outcast, the man with the withered hand, the leper, the paralytic. No matter how hard they tried, they could never be good enough, and they were always being condemned. And that's why when Jesus steps into the scene and says, if you're burdened and you're heavy laden, if you're broken down under trying to keep the law, then come to me and I will give you rest. What Jesus says is if you think you're going to find hope, if you think you're going to find peace for your soul, trying to be the good person, well, let me just break your heart right now. There's no way you're going to find hope there. He says... For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Mark's account, Mark's account, chapter 2, verse 27 of Mark says this, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was established to help the people remember, the Israelite nation remember that they had been brought out of slavery, how they had to work when they were enslaved in Egypt. And not only that, that God in His creation account rested on that seventh day and He gives the nation of Israel a blessing to be able to step back from their work and rest from all of their labor. You see, the Sabbath, man was not made for the Sabbath. In other words, there are some things about mankind and about loving one another that supersedes law, mercy, forgiveness, compassion, love. Those who were laboring were trying to be right with God through the law, because that's all they've been taught. Now, you and I, being Gentiles, people who are non-Jewish, when we think about the law, we think about the Ten Commandments, and we think about some of the things that we've skimmed over, maybe in Leviticus or Exodus, right? But I, I think that here today, right here sitting in this room today, there are people who are trying their dead-level best to find hope and performance. And so let me ask you a question, and I want you to really think about this for just a moment. What are you, what are you basing your salvation upon? And when I, so when I use that word salvation, when I, want, I want to define that. So that word salvation means to be right with God, your creator. In other words, you have been created by God to pursue Him. And, and you've been trying to pursue God by doing good things, good works, all kinds of things. So you've been trying to have a relationship with your creator 
But the way you've been trying to do it is leaving Jesus out of the equation. So here's what you're doing. You're trying to be a good person. Well, what does that mean for our culture? Well, that means uh, being a good Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or non-denom, whatever you want to call it. Uh, maybe, maybe showing up eight to nine times a year. Uh, you, you're checking the boxes on, on the good works that you're doing. and So therefore, when you have more checked boxes over here, and less over here than the scale tips in your favor, and that must be salvation, right? But let me ask you a question. Are you not always wondering if you've done enough? Are you not always wondering, is, is the scale tip just enough? Have you done 1% more good than you have bad? Is it, is it 51 versus 49? How do you know? Do you ever really know? No, you don't, and that's the problem, right? So is there any hope found there? No. Not apart from feelings. So what are you basing your salvation upon? There was a preacher by the name of George Whitfield. George Whitfield, I love this quote. Listen to this. He says, Do not flatter yourselves of being good enough because you are morally so. Because you go to church, say the prayers, take the sacrament, or participate in communion. Therefore, you think no more required. Alas, you are deceiving your very own souls. There was a period of time after I came to faith in Christ at 16, there was a period of about six years there that I had this concept of working to earn God's favor. Even, even after I'd been born again, even after that moment I had surrendered everything to Christ and know that I had had a changed life, know that, that God had done something on the inside of me that I couldn't even explain. I knew that I'd come from darkness into light. But even after that point, I was still doing all these things because in my mind I thought that I had to keep somehow God's favor. I had to, I had to be a good little boy. And I had to check all the boxes on the good little side of the piece of paper so that, so that God would, would continue to love me. And I thought that for years, folks. And listen, no hope was found there. Because you know what? I was constantly going through this cycle of, well, I've, I've made a mistake today and I've dropped the ball today and therefore God has turned His back on me and walked away and He doesn't love me anymore and so now I've got to beg for His grace and beg for His mercy, and I've got to do all this good stuff so that, so that God will see me as a good person. And it was years. I was in my early 20s before I realized something amazing in Scripture, that I had been declared righteous by God the moment I put my faith in Jesus. You know what that means? That means that God loves me with an everlasting love that day, today, and forevermore, and nothing I'm ever going to do is going to change that. I'm going to tell you something, folks. That gave me hope. Hope like I had never found anywhere else. What it, we, can, we can continue down this path of trying to work it all out. Jesus talks about a time where we're going to stand before him. He, he brings this up in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. It's one of the most sobering two verses I can find in Scripture. There's going to be this time where we're standing before Jesus, and Jesus, in essence, is going to ask, well, what are you basing your salvation upon? He doesn't say that in the text, but it's kind of paraphrasing here, using my own language here. But in essence, that's what's going to happen. And Jesus says there's going to be people who stand before him, and they are fully expecting to cross into eternity, cross into his presence, cross into all that heaven is and all that the kingdom is, 
And they're going to have reasons for why they believe that everything is okay. And, and they're going to start spouting those things off. In the text it says, didn't we prophesy in your name? Did we do all these things in your name? <laughs> and they're fully expecting that in that moment, it's all going to tip in their favor. And then Jesus says something that is incredibly scary, sobering. Um, it, it should jerk us into reality. And he says this, depart from me. You're a worker or a practicer of sin or iniquity. Depart. Now in that moment, the contrast between what that person is thinking and what Jesus says could not be further apart because in that moment, that person has put their faith in the works. Not Jesus. And that's the problem. And I'll tell you something else. Whatever you've put your hope in or whatever you've put your faith in, that's where you're trying to find hope. You're trying to find hope wherever you've put your faith. If you've put your faith in works, if you've put your faith in putting your name on a membership roll, if you've put your faith in getting baptized, if you've put your faith in some prayer you said 25 years ago, that's where you're trying to find hope. And you're not finding it because the only place that hope can be found is in a person. That's how we define hope. Hope is defined by a person. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Amen. Now notice where they go next. He went on from there and entered into a synagogue, and there was a man there with a withered hand. So there's a man in the synagogue. Now why was this man in the synagogue? He, he had a withered hand. His hand was all drawn. He couldn't use it. He had one healthy hand and one hand that was in terrible shape. Now the reason this man was in the synagogue is he's looking for hope. I don't know how many years this man has been to the synagogue, but I know this for certain, that every time he goes into the synagogue, you know what he does? He takes that withered hand and he sticks it inside of his cloak. Now, why do you think he does that? Because he doesn't want to be condemned. Because the Pharisees believed that if you had some kind of physical ailment, whether it be you're paralyzed, you're blind, you can't hear, you can't speak, a withered hand, leprosy, if you have any of that going on, the Pharisees had come to the conclusion that, that you have sinned in some grave way towards God. And therefore, whatever you're struggling under, whether it be blindness or a lame hand, you deserve what you're getting, and therefore you are a perpetual sinner. So when this man would walk into the synagogue, you know what he would do? He would slip his hand inside of his cloak because he didn't want anybody to see. He didn't want to be condemned. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Jesus is asked because they know what Jesus has been doing. Jesus has been consistently healing people. Here's this man who's got a lame hand, and it would be obvious for these people to think that Jesus is going to do something. So they said, Jesus, is it lawful to heal this man on the Sabbath? I mean, what have the Pharisees offered him up to this point? What, what have they offered to this man other than making him feel like he's less than human? Less than them. And I'll offer to you that the Pharisees, the reason they're so challenged by Jesus is because of their pride and their own arrogance. So Jesus, what are you going to do? He says, which one of you has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath will not take hold of it and lift it out? You go back into the law, specifically in Exodus 23. You'll find in verses 4 and 5, I think it is, where in the law, it says that 
If you find an animal that has been disabled or an oxen that has wandered away from its owner, even if that owner is your enemy, you have the responsibility to take that animal back to your enemy and make sure that it's taken care of. Remember, mercy over sacrifice. So, so Jesus looks at the Pharisees and he says, listen, if you have a sheep that falls in a pit, you know you're going to pull it out. You know you're not going to walk by. Well, wait a minute. Here's a man with a withered hand who's keeping his hand hidden from all of you guys because he's ashamed. He's been condemned. How much more value is a man than a sheep? You see, this legalism, placing the law above everything, over mercy, love, compassion. You see, what it always does is it dehumanizes because none of us can ever obtain that perfection on our own. And so therefore we keep trying and we keep trying and we keep trying and we only come back to the same place where we started and that is there is no way to fix this brokenness on the inside of us, right? The pain is still there. The guilt is still there. The shame is still there. This man knew well about guilt and shame, didn't he? He's been told his whole life that what's going on with his hand is simply because either he sinned or his parents sinned. That's what he's been told his whole life. How much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he said to the man, pull your hand out of your cloak. This is the one thing this man did not want to do. But put, put your feet in his shoes. You're standing in a crowd of people. You've been hiding You've been hiding this? And Jesus says, pull, pull your hand out of your cloak. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. In a single second of time, what this man had been ashamed of, what this man had been accused of, what this man had been pushed down because of, was gone in a mo moment of seconds. And just like I said at the very beginning, every word, every work, and every wonder points back to the reality of who Christ is. And in that moment, you know what Christ is saying to the world, to the Pharisees, and for us reading this so many years later, just like every miracle that He's performed, that there is hope, and hope is a person. Not a concept, not a feeling, not an idea, not some kind of abstract thing out in space, but hope is is a person, and it's in that person that we find true, lasting hope. This man, this man was set free in a single moment in time. Notice how the Pharisees respond. They conspired against him to destroy him. Isn't that exactly what we would expect from people who've tried to find hope in the law? They, they don't even see this man as a man. They don't, they don't see him with compassion. They don't see him with love and mercy. They see him as a broken human being that is unredeemable because there's no way he could ever keep the law, right? There's no way he could ever be clean. There's no way he could ever find peace and freedom. But Isaiah told us of this hundreds of years before. Look at verse 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and look at this, and he healed them all. He healed them all. No matter who they were, no matter what their background was, no matter what their ailment was, Jesus is healing from sun up until sun down. And in the, as he's healing, he's teaching. And as he's teaching, he's touching broken people. And folks, I want you to see that hope is found there. It's found there. 
Christmas season, this, this season of celebrating Advent and the coming of Messiah, this Messiah did not remain in Bethlehem in a manger. This, this baby grew up and did amazing and miraculous and beautiful things, all pointing to who he is and what he came to accomplish. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in the name, and in his name, the Gentiles will have hope. So Isaiah says hundreds of years before that this Messiah who's going to come is not going to be like a warlord. His first coming is not going to be with swords drawn and shields blaring. He's not going to be coming in such a way that, that he's going to declare an act of war on those who oppose Israel. No, he, he's going to come in humility, and he's going to come. And even those who are broken, even those who are hurting, even those who've been pushed aside, he won't even hurt them. He'll go seeking them with love and compassion, and he will call them to where hope can be found, and he will give them peace and freedom. He's not coming like the Pharisees thought he would. No, he's coming. He's coming in peace. And in his name, the Gentiles, you and I, we find hope. So hope is a person. Hope, true hope, not hope that's based on how you feel today. Not hoping that the salad you eat for lunch is going to undo all the pumpkin pie. Because that's not based in facts, is it? No, the hope we're talking about is a God who makes promises. And he has revealed for all humanity that one of the greatest promises he ever made and that there would be one who would come. And he would come from the line of Jesse. And he would come and, and be compassionate among the most broken people of this world. So you don't have to hide anymore. You don't have to worry about what someone's going to think about your brokenness. You don't have to put the hand inside the cloak and just go about the practice of religion anymore. No, you can come forward with all of your brokenness, with all of your pain, with all of your shame, and all of your guilt. And finally, once in your life, find hope. And hope is found in a person, the Messiah, the author and finisher of our faith, Jesus Christ the righteous. Father in heaven, I ask that you would seek out those in this room who um, have gotten very good at hiding, gotten really good at putting on the, the outward appearance of religiosity, gotten really good at looking as though everything is okay on the outside, when in fact on the inside, we're desperately looking for something real. Father, seek them out this morning. You, you have a tendency, Father, to, to seek out those who've been marginalized. Father, we see evidence of it from, from Genesis all the way to Revelation. 
you seeking out the marginalized, the, the weak, the ones that are about to give up. And Father, help them to see that the true hope in a broken world is very real. It's alive. It's in the person of your son. May we quit clinging on to other things. Father, how foolish would it be for us to continue running back to something, thinking we're going to find hope, knowing all along that we're not. So, Father, may we no longer hide in the shadows. May we step into the light and surrender ourselves to a great and mighty King who loves us with an everlasting love. Have your will in your way. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.